Okay, Mark chapter 8. A new chapter. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come and study tonight, Lord, you would help us to, to hear from you, to understand your word, and for your spirit to speak to our hearts and to transform us, to change us. Father, have mercy on us. We're blind, we're deaf, we're hard-hearted. Speak to us. Help us to see that we might glorify you. Amen. Okay. So we come now to chapter 8. And... It starts in uh, verse 1, in those days when again a great crowd has gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have uh, been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they had set, before, they had set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And after they took, up the, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. All right. So, I've kind of joked about this in the previews, but, you know, after the feeding of the 5,000, you'd expect the sequel to be the feeding of the 6,000 or, or something like that. But, but he's going down in numbers, down to the 4,000 here. And uh, the, the, I think there is actually a significant reason for that. But this is not the only similarity here in this mass feeding. When we were in Mark chapter 6 and we had the feeding of the 5,000, we had the feeding of the 5,000. After that feeding of the 5,000, they crossed the lake away. When they crossed the lake, they immediately got into a controversy with the Pharisees over uh, the traditions and commandments of the Pharisees. Do you remember all of that? The, what goes into a man doesn't make him uh, clean. What comes out of a man makes him unclean. Um, so they had that controversy with the Pharisees. And then following that controversy, there is dialogue about bread. Remember the Syrophoenician woman asking uh, for her daughter to be healed and Jesus saying, no, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel, I've come to feed them. And she said, yeah, but the dogs get the crumbs from the bread under the table. So there's a discussion about the bread. And then following that, the section ends with, or the chapter, that chapter, chapter 7 ends, with him healing a man who is deaf and mute. He cannot hear, he cannot speak. Okay? 
Now we've got another mass feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. After this has happened, he's going to cross the lake. When he crosses the lake, they're going to have immediately another controversy with the Pharisees. When they've had controversy with the Pharisees, it will lead to discussion about a loaf, about bread again. And then following that, there'll be another healing, this time of someone who's blind, who can't see. It's the same structure, repeated twice. And it's been leading us on in the development, remember this whole section from chapter 4 is been dealing with the um, training of the disciples. And it kicked off in chapter 4, and this is important for tonight, so I'm going to turn there. It kicked off in chapter 4 with the beginning of the parables. And he said to them with the parables, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So when, when we got, this, and this is crucial, when the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit had happened, which was the rejection of Christ by Israel, when that had happened, Jesus immediately has got Israel under judgment, and now he's not going to teach them clearly like he did before anymore. What he's going to do now, he's going to teach them in parables. And he specifically says he's teaching them in parables so that, he goes on, they may indeed see, but not perceive. Blindness. They may hear, but not understand. Deafness. Those miracles we were paralleling a second ago. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Remember that? Lest they turn and be forgiven. He doesn't want them to he hear. He doesn't want them to see, because he doesn't want them to be forgiven. Why? Because they've committed the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not an individual sin, not done by you or me or any individual, but done by that whole generation of Israel in the rejection of the Messiah. And that judgment cannot be reversed. It can't be turned around. So now he's going to speak in parables, because if he doesn't, they might see, they might hear, they might repent. But that time has now passed. So we had that kicking off this whole section in chapter 4 with the, um, with the uh, training of the disciples now with this new method, holding back from Israel, but teaching those individuals within Israel, the individuals who have believed, training them in the kingdom of God and training them in discipleship. So these two cycles that we now had, we've had one, we're starting the next, with a mass feeding, 5,000 then 4,000, crossing the lake, controversy with the Pharisees, dialogue about bread, healing someone who can't hear, healing someone who can't see. This is all part of the progression. And as we've gone through this progression, starting in chapter 5, we saw them go, Jesus go to Gentile territory. He didn't go there to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He went there to have some quiet time. But he gets there, and there's a man possessed by a multitude of demons. He casts them out, and his word gets out about him in Gentile territory. He's now gone back to Gentile territory, and we're starting to see some faith among the Gentiles. And just like with the Jews, he's responding to that faith. Now, he's not come for the Gentiles. He told the Syrophoenician woman that. I've not come for you, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. I'm here to train the Jewish disciples. But she rightly said, but the dogs get crumbs under the table. And so, where there is faith, he will then, when they reach out in faith, minister like he's ministering to the Jews in faith, though they are not the priority. Now, all of that is a lot of background and introduction to where we're at because the flow is crucial here. 
And all of these themes are now being picked up again in Mark chapter 8. So here, as we've read, we have the feeding of the 4,000. I won't go through the details as much. We've done this uh, in a very similar fashion with regards to the feeding of the 5,000. But there's a great crowd gathered. Now, in those days, it's quite a, um, a vague phrase here, but it's clearly talking about the same time. And remember, in the end of chapter 7, they are in now in Gentile territory. We've been, as I said, we've been dealing a bit with the Gentiles here. So the key difference, this is crucial, the key difference here between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is the feeding of the 5,000 was the feeding of Jewish disciples who he was teaching and training. And now, following him being in the Gentile region, him giving some crumbs to the woman with the healing of her daughter, the healing of a deaf man, it seems here again now, from where he is geographically, that he's again ministering to Gentile believers. Now that's crucial for us to understand because the passage only makes sense when we understand that. So in the same way that he was training and teaching disciples privately, he's now doing the same with Gentile believers in Gentile territory. Now, notice what he does in verse 1. He called his disciples to him and said to them, he could have just fed these people. He's not trying to feed the people. He's trying to teach the disciples. That's why he calls them to him. And he's testing them. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. So you think, that, by the way, just get your head around that. That's pretty awesome. They've gone out to follow Jesus to hear his teaching. And they've obviously brought some food and water with them but they've been there now for three days listening to Jesus. Can you imagine that? A three-day conference with Jesus. I mean, that must have been astonishing. Him teaching them all about the false teaching of the religious system of the day, him teaching them about the kingdom of God, about faith in him. This, this is, uh, would have been amazing. Three days of teaching. I'd love to have been there for it. And... Now they've run out of food. And he's obviously testing the disciples. They should have learned this lesson. They learned it with the feeding of the 5,000, surely. And so he says, I can't just send them home. They're going to faint on the way home. We could have sent them home yesterday. We've left it too late. Now they're out, they're out of food. So we're going to have to feed them. And his disciples, in verse 4, answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In other words, we're still dumb. We don't get it. We don't see. We don't understand. Now, we've seen gradually. We saw this in chapter 6. And this is crucial. Crucial to this passage, okay? That we had in chapter 4 blindness and deafness. Not being able to understand for those who are outside the kingdom of God. Because they mustn't repent. And then when we got into chapter 6, that same concept of blindness and deafness has gradually been introduced with regards to the disciples. Now they do believe. They do have faith. But nevertheless, the same ailments, spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, afflict them as well. 
And that's been a theme that I've been pointing out to you three or four times now as we've gone through the weeks. And here we are, and we're seeing their blindness, their deafness, their lack of awareness. They have faith, they believe in Jesus, and yet here they are in exactly the same situation they were in Jewish territory. They've got a smaller crowd, so it should be easier. And we're in the same situation again. Well, we can't do anything, we're in the middle of nowhere, what do we do? So Jesus again directs them. He says, how many loaves do you have? They said seven, that's crucial, we're going to come back to that. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, again paralleling the 5,000 being fed, and having blessed them, he said that they also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied just as with the 5,000. Again, you have people who have been rationing small amounts of food because they've been there three days and now they are, so they're obviously hungry, and now they're fully satisfied. They've all eaten not just a bit, they've eaten a lot. And more so, there's more than they can eat. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Adal Manutha. Okay, this number seven keeps coming up, doesn't it? 777. Why does seven come up? We had how many baskets of leftovers in the feeding of the 5,000? We had 12 baskets. 12 baskets. Two reasons for that. Firstly, each disciple had a basket each. And by the way, if you like the details, these clearly are different events. Different numbers of people, different audience, and different baskets. One, one of the baskets is uh, one Greek word, and one is a different Greek word. And one of them is a basket without handles that you carried on your head, like you see sometimes the African people doing today in transporting things. And the other one is a basket with handles. So there were different baskets, different places, different people, although there are obviously similarities and different numbers of leftovers. So the 12 were the leftover baskets, one for each disciple. They got their lesson each. But beyond that, the entire audience was a Jewish audience. And the 12 baskets were for not just for those 12 individuals to learn, but for all the Jews to learn, thus representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which it so often does, the number 12. It's not like I'm plucking that out from, from thin air. You know, that's obviously a reoccurring thing within scripture. So the, um, so, the so the disciples got their individual lesson, the Jews got their individual lesson. So why seven so crucial now? Well, because the, when the, the Jews obviously came into the land in the Canaanite conquest, and um, I've just kind of been going through that with a separate study lately, which has been fascinating, but there were nations that were in that land before they, the Jews came into the land and took the land which God had given to them. How many nations do you think were in the land? Seven. Seven nations, seven Gentile nations in the Gentile land. And now, the land is no longer at this point where they are standing now in Jewish control, and it's again Gentile land. And I think that's significant. And by the way, some other people think that the seven may be a reference to the seven laws of the Noahic covenant, because the covenant with Moses, of course, was a covenant to the Jews, but the covenant with Noah was a covenant to all of mankind. 
But I think that's a bit looser. I'm happy with the seven nations. But it's clearly pointing to the Gentile nature of this. And this is what he's doing. He's basically saying, I'm here, I can minister to Jews, and I can also minister to the Gentiles. Now, for us, from our perspective, that's like a, duh, yeah. But that's so radical in that day. And that's something that Mark is keen to point out, because he's writing to a predominantly Gentile Roman audience. And so we've had this, with, this is a theme that's been developing, hasn't it? We had the demoniac in chapter 5, that was the first venture into Gentile territory. We've had the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, and this whole theme is developing. She introduced the concept that though the, God, the, the message of the kingdom is not for them right now, that they can have scraps. And here are seven baskets of scraps in the very next passage, so it's obviously a clear link, seven baskets of scraps that are available for all those Gentile people. This is something that is clearly being communicated and it's something that was very radical and offensive to the Jewish mind. Now remember, when Jesus was rejected, the Pharisees came and they rejected him, you're possessed by Beelzebub, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the people, generally speaking, followed. Because the the leaders had such control over the rest of Israel. That's why when we saw later on that some of the, the, the Pharisees came and had that controversy in chapter 7, he said, some of your disciples aren't washing. And I said to you at the time, one of the surprises is that some of them still are. Jesus has freed them from the shackles of Pharisaic Judaism and all the additional legalistic rules and regulations. And yet some of them are still doing it. Why? that's what they're used to, that's what they know. And so this Gentile phobia is a real problem. It's a real problem for them. And it's not a problem that gets resolved when Peter confesses his faith at the end of this chapter. It's not a problem that gets resolved after the death of Christ. It's not a problem that gets resolved after the resurrection of Christ. And it's not even a problem that gets resolved after they're given the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 10, Peter is still struggling with the concept of it. And God has to give him separate visions to confirm that Gentiles can be part of the church. And then we find out later in the letters that Paul had to rebuke Peter because he's still slipping back on the same issue. It was a problem for them. This is radical teaching right here in front of us. And I guess most of us, if not all of us, are of Gentile origin. We're the puppy dogs getting the scraps. I'm grateful for those seven baskets. Because he's not our Messiah. The spirit that we have within us was promised in a covenant that's not our covenant. But we're getting the scraps. We're partakers of that covenant. We're partakers of that Messiah. And we praise God for that. Now, as he completes the miracle, the people now have enough food for the journey home. They're sent home, and immediately, remember whenever Mark uses that word, it's like a camera scene, shift, focus, you know, hashtag boom, just doom, there we are. So he's drawing our attention to what? Well, they're getting in the boat and they're going to Dalmuthia, Dalmanuthia, wherever that is. Why is that important? Well, that's important because Dalmanutha is back into Jewish territory. 
So what, what Mark, and again, that immediately, remember, it's a camera focus. It's a zoom, zoom in, focus, shift. We've been looking at this, and boom, now we're looking at that. So when, when Mark's doing this, he's saying to you, okay, so we've had our seven baskets. We've had our Gentiles. Boom, now we're back in Jewish territory. That's important. Let's see what happens. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign for heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is deeply symbolic deeply symbolic. We've already seen in the previous cycle, we've seen the Syrophoenician woman and her faith and her getting the scraps of healing for her daughter. We see then the man who's deaf having his ears opened and that comes immediately after the conflict with the Pharisees. So we have mass feeding, crossing over the water, conflict with Pharisees, dialogue about bread and faith and then we have the healing. And when we had that Syrophoenician woman and her dialogue about bread and the scraps of bread, it came after the controversy with the Pharisees because the picture he's painting is this. Mass feeding Jewish disciples who believe. Controversy Jewish leadership who don't believe. Gentile faith and dialogue those who, who are shaming the Pharisees by their faith. The Pharisees, who were the great learned ones in the law, didn't have faith in Christ. But a Gentile woman did. Shame on them. And then the symbolic opening of the ears with the healing of a deaf man. Now again we have the mass feeding of the 4,000. Again they've crossed the lake. And again they're having a controversy with the Pharisees. And again the point is that the Gentiles have been listening to him to teach for three days. The Gentiles have received from him. And now the Pharisees still don't get it. The Gentiles can see, the Gentiles can hear, but the Pharisees, they can't. And that's the point he's making here. And they argue with him. They seek a sign from heaven. Again, you see the different approach as opposed to having faith that we've seen with the Gentiles. They're arguing. They're not listening. They want another sign. Why do they want a sign? What's going to happen if they get a sign? Do they have signs before? Yeah, sure they had signs before. What happened with those signs? Oh, you do it by Beelzebub. I genuinely think this. The reason they asked for a sign was not a case of, well, look, if you are the Messiah, prove it to us. That wasn't it at all. They wanted him to do something miraculous for them. Why? Because then they can say to people, look, sorcery, demonic power, look. They want a chance to make their proclamation again. Why haven't they done that for a while? Because since the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he hasn't done any miracles in public. Every single miracle we've been through, I've shown you every time. He takes them away privately. He ministers to people who have faith, who are disciples, on the basis of their faith. He checks to see if they have faith. You do have faith. You're a disciple. I will do this miracle, this healing for you, because you're a disciple and I'm training you. But for Israel as a whole, no, 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 no. You can't hear. You can't see. We don't want you to be forgiven. That's what it is. 
So the Pharisees haven't had any public miracles. He's doing them all privately. They want him to do it publicly. They want him to do it publicly so that they can again repeat their condemnation of him. We know that. They've come to argue. They haven't come to hear. And so he says, why does this generation seek a sign? You see that emphasis? I showed you that in Mark chapter 3. The emphasis on this generation. Who committed the unforgivable sin? Was it one guy? Was it another guy? Is it something that you could do? Is it something that I could do? No. It was committed by a nation, a specific generation of that nation. And that nation has come under blindness because of that generation. That's repeated again and again. So it's this generation that the leadership represents who are the ones who seek a sign. Why do you seek a sign? And I think that is him suggesting to them he knows their hearts, he knows why they seek a sign. Truly I say to you, I'm not sure Mark uses the truly, truly in quite the same way that John does. Whenever John does it, he's saying, just as an aside, um, whenever John says truly, truly I say unto you, what John's doing is he's saying like, what I'm going to say is true. No, 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 it's really true. And what he's about to do is present a truth that they're likely not to believe. Typically, it's something that contradicts Pharisaic Judaism. And we can see kind of parallels with that here, in that he's saying, truly I say to you, the truly means this is really true. You're not going to believe it, but it really is true. Again, it's, it's a contradiction of the Pharisaic way of thinking. But he says, no sign will be given to this generation. They've come to pronounce their judgment again, and it ends with Jesus pronouncing his judgment again. Do you remember the conflicts you've had with the Pharisees now? Again, I like showing you the flow of Mark, okay? The conflict with the Pharisees, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they condemn him, they make a decision about him. Chapter 7, controversy with the Pharisees. We have the, what goes into you doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean thing. And there, he makes his conviction, his decision about them. He condemns them. So the first time they, they say this about him, second time he says this about them. This time, the third time, they come to make their conviction about him again, their condemnation of him again. And yet he stops them from doing that and he instead makes his condemnation of them again. That's how those parallels all flow together. And then, very symbolic in verse 13, he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. He is done with them, his, their time is over, they are under judgment, there is no, re, no revoking of that judgment, he is leaving them and going away from them again. Now, they had forgotten, verse 14, to bring bread. Seems to be a reoccurring theme, not having enough bread, does it not? So they, they have forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And again, there are parallels. We have a little bit of food, but not enough in the 5,000. A little bit of food, but not enough in the 4,000. Each time, Jesus is showing them that he is sufficient to provide for their needs. He's showing them that he is God, and that he can be trusted, that he is their provider, that he is their sufficiency. And again here now, he is showing the disciples. And again, it's not a replication, but what he's going to say, instead of replicating the bread, he's going to give them the food of his teaching. That replaces the replication of bread, the food of his teaching. 
And he is going to give then something which is going to speak of his sufficiency, speak of his ability to provide in a different way. And he cautioned them, said to them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So leaven is an old word, we tend to use the word yeast these days. Not quite sure why a, a version as modern as ESV would use leaven rather than yeast, I guess traditions, but there it is. But yeast. So let, let's talk about that for a bit, because that's where we are now. We're, we're in a whole bread theme today. Yeast is what you put in bread to make it rise, right? So when you bake a loaf of bread and you don't put yeast in, uh, oh, let's do the other way. When you bake a loaf of bread and you put yeast in, you can throw that to the birds for them to eat. When you make a loaf of bread and you don't put yeast in, you put the birds in mortal danger when you throw it at them. It's a, it's a denser, harder, tougher kind of loaf, right? And uh, the, the idea of yeast is that what yeast is doing is you put a small amount in the mixture and the yeast spreads throughout the loaf. You don't get a little bit of the loaf rising and most of it staying dead. It spreads throughout. Now, the use of leaven or yeast in the literature of that day was commonplace. The rabbis themselves spoke of uh, leavening yeast in, in, in things and it was spoken of negatively. So yeast is a negative term. That's not to say that yeast in bread isn't good or is a bad thing, although it is, we'll come to that in a minute, but, but it's to say that the idiomatic expression that come into their religious culture and their Jewish culture of that day to speak of leaven being something negative, sinful, spreading through, passing through. So we don't have that background, so I explain it to you so you understand how it should and would have been understood. So when he speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's speaking of the negativity, the falseness, the false doctrine. It always speaks of sin, but it seems that in the Gospels, it specifically speaks of the sin of false doctrine. The Pharisees' sin is the falseness that they taught. Herod's sin is the falseness in this context that he taught. It is interesting, by the way, that... Um, one thing I like when we take communion, as we did this morning, is that we have the more cracker-type bread than the softer-type bread. I always find it, I mean, it's really hard, you know? I mean, you know, in this culture, I know I'm never going to win the battle of, you know, people having actual wine with communion, and we're going to have grape juice. It's not the same thing, and it's different. And how much do you change things before you lose the symbolism? I mean, could you have a, a Hershey's bar and a can of Coke and take communion? I mean, you know, how far do you go before you lose it? But one thing I'm not fond of is I'm not fond of yeast bread, normal, regular, fluffy bread being used for communion because it symbolizes sin biblically. And the whole point of Passover bread was they didn't have time to put the yeast in for the bread to rise. So they had unleavened without yeast bread. And that's a picture of the body of Christ because his body was without sin, unleavened. And so that, that, that whole analogy carries throughout the whole of Scripture, Passover right the way through, and that, that's why that's important to me. Anyway, that's in passing. He's talking about the sin and the false doctrine of the Pharisees and of Herod. And let's talk about what that is. I mean, the Pharisees' false teaching we've dealt with in detail. We've seen that in chapter 7. We're not done with it yet. We're going to have more 
controversy and more dealing with them. But uh, predominantly, they were giving additional rules and regulations, as we saw in chapter 7. Those rules and regulations then would trump the original rules and regulations of Moses, and they would end up doing additional things, condemning those who didn't do those additional things, and at the same time, neglecting the very things they were supposed to be doing. And he's saying, watch out for that. Be careful of that. And he also warns them about Herod and how the Pharisees and Herod come together, we'll see as the gospel develops more. But we have here predominantly two different groups who viewed Jesus as a threat in two different ways. With the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat because he was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and he was going to overthrow their system and their religion. And he made that very, very clear. Their rule was over with his rule. Every bit of teaching he's done from the very beginning, when it's clear, he's separating the two. This is Pharisaic Judaism, this is my way. This is the way of Christ, this is the way of the kingdom. They're actually the real Judaism, the real Old Testament way. But the Pharisees had gone so far from that. And with Herod, Herod's fear, as we saw again back a little bit earlier on in the whole incident with the beheading of John the Baptist, Herod's fear was the influence of Christ in that he might bring an overthrow. And they both misunderstood messiahship. They misunderstood who the messiah should be, who the messiah was, what the messiah would do. And that's going to become crucial as a theme as we come to the end of this chapter with Peter's confession of the messiahship of Jesus. But that's next week. So that's kind of what he's doing. He's saying, look, be careful. The Pharisees have said, hey, you want a sign, want a sign. That sounds like a good thing at face value. He says, watch out for them. They're sneaky. Watch out for what they teach, what they do. You're not following them anymore. Watch out for them. And you're not following Rome. Watch out for Rome. You're following me. That's essentially what he's saying. But they misunderstand. And they begin discussing, verse uh, uh, 16, with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, don't you understand? Implication, no. Now, As always, these themes of blindness, these themes of deafness, these themes of not understanding are rich in Old Testament heritage. We normally, when he makes allusions, we go to those passages and we look at them in detail, but we've seen a lot of this already, so I'm going to skim it tonight. Um, But I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses. You have to turn there. Um, Jeremiah 5.20, declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah, to Jewish people. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me? Declares Yahweh. That's an important allusion because he's referencing it here. You don't have eyes, you don't see. You don't have ears, you don't hear. So what's the the alternative? It's having fear of who? Yahweh. 
God. All of Jesus' miracles, chapter 4 and through, have been trying to teach the disciples, I'm not just the Messiah, I'm God. We showed you that in every single miracle all the way through. And that's what they should have learned from there as well. And again, you'll see the allusion in Ezekiel 12. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Again, a reference to Israel. Who have eyes to see, but see not. Who have ears to hear, but hear not. For they are a rebellious people. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage. Go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You should bring out your baggage day by day. And so he does that as an assign to them. And so we have Ezekiel again referencing the blind and the deaf and not being able to see or hear. And of course we have our references we've seen already tonight back to Mark 4 and Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10. They can't see, they can't hear. And this is really now, this whole theme has come full circle. We started in chapter 4 with the blindness of the Jews because of the unforgivable sin. There's judgment upon them, they can't see, they can't hear. Then we have the disciples who are being trained in contrast to that. But as we went through the chapters, it became clear that those disciples, though they are distinct from those who are outside the kingdom, they still have problems with seeing and hearing. They're still blind. They're still dumb. And that whole theme has grown. It's gathered momentum. And here, at the end of this section, we have the clearest statement of it. Don't you get it? Twelve baskets, Jews, seven baskets, Gentiles. Who provided? I provided. Who's the Lord? Who's the way? Who am I? Do you not get it? Do you not get it? Do you not get it? I'm telling you to watch out for the Pharisees because you're not doing their way anymore. You're not part of this system anymore, part of Rome's system anymore. You're part of my system. You trust in me. You rely upon me. We don't do things the same way. Do you not understand? Do you not see who I am? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Now, in the next section, and we'll, we'll do the next section tonight. I, ha, I, I was kind of ready for this, and I, I want to finish it because I want to spend more time next week on the following section. He came to Bethsaida. And I, I, you know what? I'll half do it. I'll skim it tonight, and then we'll go back into some more details next time. Um, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him uh, to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Again, the secrecy. Now, this is key. This is, this is so cool. Didn't want to hold back on this, really. Um, what's going on here? Firstly, broadly speaking, once again, we have this section, this second cycle. 
mass feeding and training, uh, crossing the lake, controversy with Pharisees, dialogue about bread, and then and, and talking about blindness and deafness, and then the healing that illustrates it. Okay? Previously, the healing of the deaf mute, this time, the healing of the blind man. So the, the disciples have a problem. What's their problem? They don't understand, they can't see. Who gives sight? Jesus gives sight. Jesus gives sight to the blind. He opens eyes. He enables people to see. Now this miracle is utterly unique amongst the Gospels for one very distinctive thing. Here's the distinctive thing. He doesn't get it right first time. I say that facetiously. He knew exactly what he was doing, obviously. But it's a two-step process. Initially, look what happens. First of all, he takes him out. Uh, they brought him a blind man and begged to touch him. He took the man by the hand and led him out of the village. Why is he out of the village? He's out of the village because it can't be a public miracle because there can't be any signs to Israel. Israel doesn't get signs. Israel's rejected him. No signs for Israel. Private disciple, private healing. That's what's going on. Takes him out of the village. Um, he takes him out of the village. He had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him. Why is there spit on his eyes before he lays hand on him? We talked about that with the last healing with spit. Because the Pharisees forbade the use of spit in healing. Remember that. If you weren't here for that time, I'll just remind you that pagans such as Rome, remember with, with the Roman emperors, Roman emperors, Roman emperors were often thought to be gods, and there were little stories that did the rounds that were obviously urban legends and weren't true, but there were stories about how a Roman emperor would spit and put it on somebody and heal that person. That was how pagans healed. We don't do what the pagans do. You see that in Christian, you see that legalism in Christian culture today, don't you? You know? Ooh, you went to a yoga class. Isn't that what the, the Hindus do? You, you, must be, you must be way off the plantation, as it were, you know? That kind of mentality. And the Pharisees had that mentality. You can't do something that is associated with something ungodly. Guilty by association. And Jesus, so, so that because of that, they forbade it. It was in their laws, in the Mishnah, in the rabbinical additional rules and regulations on top of Moses, that you couldn't heal with spit, with spittle. So Jesus, several times in the Gospels, heals with spit. Why? Stuff you Pharisees, that's why. Absolutely. In your face. He is, he's not just a rebel. It's not coming from a bad attitude. He's showing the people, this isn't your way. He's illustrating what he's just taught them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Let me show you. I don't care what the Pharisees say. I don't care what they do. We're not bound by that anymore. You watch out for that legalism. That's deadly stuff. You stay away from it. The problem is that the legalism of the Pharisees, as explained in chapter 7, takes people away from actually obeying Moses. Legalism, you know, in churches we see this. Legalism gives the impression of holiness. Oh, I'm more holy than you because I don't do this. I'm more holy than you because I do this. All these additional rules. But, but legalism takes away from holiness because it's appeasing the flesh. That's what Paul said in Colossians 2. We went through Colossians. 
And so he says, you don't want a part of that. So let me show you. Let me show you how it's done. This is how we do it. When we show, when I show you who I am, show you that I am God, because God is the one, remember, uh, Jeremiah 5, God's the one who opens the eyes. God's the one who opens the ears. God is the one who brings sight. When I show you that I'm God, I'm going to do it in such a way as to show you that my way, my system, who I am, is completely distinct and separate from that religious system. Completely separate. So that's why he spits. Now why, oh why, when he spits and touches him, presumably knowing full well the job wasn't fully done, does he say, what can you see? And the guy has half vision. He's at a halfway house, blurry vision. Let me tell you why. Because he is a picture of the disciples. The disciples have had their eyes opened by God, by Christ, and they can see, but yet they can't see. Next week, Peter's going to say, you're the Messiah. Oh, you can see that, but you can't see that I'm God yet, can you? We see you, Jesus. You look like a tree, blurry in the distance. People like trees. That's what it is. It's a picture of the disciples' sight. It's, a, it's an explanation of this whole theme that is developing here. He's explaining to them and showing them, you're blind, you're blind like they're blind. And the only way that blindness is resolved is by God opening eyes. I've opened your, your eyes, and you can see a little bit. But I need to open them some more. You need to be asking me to open your eyes. Next week, we're going to come to a passage that changes everything. It is the conclusion of this whole theme. It's the conclusion of this whole section. The conclusion of this whole flow. This training up. And we're going to finally see what it is that they see. We're going to see what it is that the disciples have that those outside the kingdom don't have. And we're going to see what it is that they don't yet have. We're going to see what they see and see what they don't see. And with that, everything's going to change in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of scripture. And Father, may we see you clearly. As disciples, we see. We've placed our trust and our faith in you. But our faith is so often weak. We don't trust you to feed us. We don't trust you to resolve our circumstances. We look at the lack of bread rather than the glorious Lord. Though we all embrace the doctrine of your deity, we often forget it in practice. Forgive us for our blindness and open our eyes that we might see you in your glory. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. May we see you, Lord, and may we trust you.
and may we follow you. Amen. Amen.